Hello, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. You can try it free at LogRocket.com. I'm Noel, and today we're joined by Carson Gross, creator of HTMX. He's here to talk about what HTMX is, why developers are excited about it, why people are talking about it, and what's on the horizon. Welcome to the show, Carson. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you very much for having me on, Noel. I'm excited to be here. Before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and kind of how you got into into web dev? I've been doing web development for a long time now. Um, I, I started web development back when it was CGI scripts and applets and very early on, the late 90s. Um, and uh, I was in the Bay Area. I went to school in the Bay Area and ended up getting a job in the Bay Area doing kind of early web development. And so I've been doing this just, it feels like forever. Went through the J2E, early on web development was Java. It's split into sort of PHP or C- CGI type stuff, which kind of turned into PHP once PHP took off. But I, I was on the more professional side doing consulting work for startup companies. And that was mainly in Java um, and J2E, kind of servlets and JSP and that whole world. So I did that for a long time and actually took a break from web development for three or four years. It's ironic that now I'm sort of a, an evangelist for hypermedia because uh, I didn't like it at first. I, I ended up building really th- a thick client app using something called Java Web Start which was a technology that Sun Microsystems back when they owned Java put out that let you start a swing application on your desktop. And so I was using that to build thick client style applications that connected with sockets and all that. Part of that was driven by, I didn't really like the way that the web worked early on with JavaScript and some of the early stuff that was going on there. So it's somewhat ironic that I've come back to end up being an evangelist for for hypermedia. But it just goes to show you never know what's gonna you never know what's gonna happen in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worked for a while at a for a very long time actually for more than a decade at a a startup that got real big that did again it was all web development so everything was on the web and then after that started my own company where i did a lot of rails development the first versions of react and stuff we thought were starting to come out and that was the point when i ended up creating something called intercooler js which was the predecessor to htmx so that was my early web development life no yeah, yeah. you mentioned it being ironic that you were hearkening for the simpler technologies I think kind of given the dichotomy of what some of the alternatives are to HTMX and what else is out there, I think that kind of having that outlook isn't that surprising, at least. Can you give listeners a a brief overview of what HTMX is before we kind of dive in a little deeper? HTMX is a very small JavaScript library, so it's about 14K, and you can include it on your page, and it's not like javascript frameworks where you have a build step and all this stuff it's an old school library in that you put it on the page and it just works and just starts working and what it allows you to do is put attributes on your html elements that will drive ajax behavior ajax behavior just making requests in the background http requests in the background behind the scenes so typically that's done these days in javascript using the fetch api usually these days usually it's j 
JSON that's fetched. So you, you issue a fetch request, you get some JSON back, you run that through some processing and produce a new UI. The way that HTMX works is, again, you use attributes directly on your HTML and the HTMX will inspect that and hook up event listeners basically to drive these HTTP requests. And the HTTP requests, in contrast with the JSON API, I should say, with the JSON API approach, um, uh, expects HTML back. What HTMX will do is it'll take that HTML that came back from the server and then insert it into the DOM. And so it's very simple at the end of the day, really, what HTMX does. You add attributes to HTML. Those attributes tell HTMX, given some event, issue a request to the server, take the HTML that comes back, not the JSON, the HTML, and insert it into the DOM somewhere. That's like the one sentence summary of what HTMX is. And that sounds pretty simple, and it is pretty simple. It's not a huge library, but it turns out that you can do quite a bit. You can make your applications much more interactive with just that simple interaction model than you might think at first. I'm, I immediately jumped to like old, old is maybe not an appropriate term, but just like frameworks that use the templating language which historically, like Rails, you said you had a Rails background where you kind of write like Ruby code and this template would then have a way you could like return HTML, but also like inject data into it to have customized experience for users. .NET had one that kind of had this hybrid thing. I think it was like Razor or something in .NET apps. I'm blanking on that. But like, you know, there's like the PHP equivalent and stuff. Were any of those kind of like a model for HTMX or are those all kind of doing their own? Like that's not really a fair analogy. Well, they weren't models, but that style of server-side MVC is definitely the world that HTMX came out of. And so HTMX, the original version of HTMX was called Intercooler JS, which was released back in 2013, I think. And, and it was based on jQuery. And so jQuery had a heavy influence on Intercooler JS and still has, if you look under the covers, has an influence on HTMX. I would say what directly influenced Intercooler JS was something called PJAX, which was a popular library in the Rails community that did something similar, not quite the same API. But PJAX did this sort of partial replacement of stuff on the screen as well. And then TurboLinks, which was the obviously in the, the Rails sort of mechanism for using AJAX to drive navigation. It, that was very, and it still is very navigation focused. They have something much closer to HTMX now called Turbo, I believe. And then also it was influenced indirectly not conceptually, but syntactically um, by Angular because Angular was the first place I saw using attributes to drive behavior in HTML. And really that was like, to me, that's the crux of what happened was seeing Angular, oh, they're using behavior, they're putting the behavior directly in the HTML, but then I want to do this PJAX thing. And those two things coming together are what made Intercooler kind of work. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I guess, what are the selling points here? Why should devs check out HTMX? What apps is it well-suited for? Or like what technical problem is it trying to really solve? I hope your listeners can appreciate this is a pretty simple tool at the end of the day. You're issuing, you're saying, okay, on a click or whatever, issue a request, get some HTML back, and then insert that into the DOM somewhere. So that sounds pretty simple and it is. And that's one of the big, that's one of the big advantages of this approach is that it is simple when compared with, for example, something like React or any of the thicker client side experiences. You have a very thin client side in the sense that you don't write a bunch of logic client side. It pushes 
your logic back onto the server. The programming model is very similar to the traditional web 1.0, you might say, style. If you built web apps back in 2005, where everything was a form submission or a link click. And so the HTMX, when you're developing, can have that sort of a feel. And the, the primary advantages of it are the simplicity of the model when compared with a thick client approach or an SPA, single page application framework approach. And there's also these... They're harder to define in quick podcast-friendly terms, but there's the the original model of the web. One of the, the the really nice aspects that it had to it was this thing called Hadios, which was hypermedia as the engine of application state. It's a an acronym that your listeners may have heard. Effectively, when your responses are hypermedia or HTML, let's just say HTML. When your responses are HTML, what's different about HTML than say a JSON response is that the HTML contains within it not only the data to display to the user but also the actions that are available to that user. So when you get a piece of HTML from some server that you've never seen before, it tells you on that page what you can do. You don't have to guess about API endpoints or any of that stuff. There's buttons and links and so forth in there that tell you what you can do. And um, so that's a very powerful, it's a subtle but very powerful aspect of hypermedia in general. And because HTMX uses hypermedia, you get that for free. Uh, you get a, a tremendous amount of flexibility from that behavior, that style of programming that people would have called restful 15 years ago. Whereas today, they typically, when they say restful, they mean something like JSON, unfortunately. That's a language confusion that <laughs> I can talk about later if you're interested. That's a good distinction. Yeah. So I think the simplicity and the flexibility are two big technical advantages of this approach. And if someone was to ask me, hey, why would I use this over something like React? That's what I'd point at. That flexibility is an interesting term to hone in on a bit there. The thing people are thinking about is SSR and how that maybe improves performance. I'm sure a lot of listeners that are not hyper-tuned into this space are thinking like, this sounds a lot like like React server components. We have these kind of tools, like the stuff the big meta frameworks are doing, like the Svelte kits and like the, the things that like, Vercel and stuff's trying to do with React. What's the relationship there? Is this a dichotomy that you think about at all, or is this not really a fair comparison? I think they're just two different ways to approach. I don't know if I want you want to say if I want to say the same problem. HTMX is really focused on increasing the expressiveness of HTML, and that's it. Like it's trying to bring HTML up. It's not trying to layer a framework on top of the HTTP interactions that occur. It's not trying to introduce abstractions that live on both sides of the wire. All it does for better or for worse is say, okay, what is HTML? What are what I would call what are hypermedia controls? What are the what's the aspect of HTML that makes it special? So it's not just a, a formatting language like Microsoft Word or something like that. It's the, it's these links and these forms which are called hypermedia controls. And so what are those things? What do they do? And what they do is they allow users to interact with the document in some way. And so then you say, okay, what's the general idea? What how do we generalize hypermedia controls? And that's what HTMX does. It lets you. Hook in any event 
and on any element, issue any type of request, and you're going to place anything on the screen. Those are the four things that HTMX does. And so in that level, or in that sense, HTMX is very low level. It's very close to what HTML is. It's much less ambitious than these holistic frameworks that solve the the general web development problem. So it just comes from a very different perspective and there's disadvantages to that and there's advantages to it. The disadvantages are that it is low level. You have to do more work often. Something that might be like just a one-liner in a framework might require some more work on your part in HTMX. That's just the trade-off that you make when you make these design decisions. But on the other hand, some nice things come out of that. For example, HTMX can work with whatever backend language and framework you want to use. As long as it can produce HTML, HTMX is indifferent, whereas React server components obviously require JavaScript on the server side. Maybe you don't want to use JavaScript on the server side. Maybe you like Clojure or Java or .NET or whatever, OCaml's. Uh, a lot of OCaml users like HTMX, Haskell, whatever, whatever the, and you know, if you're in Python, maybe you like Flask, maybe you like Django, uh, maybe you like fast, fast API. And so because HTMX stays agnostic towards the backend, doesn't try and solve both sides of the wire, just looks at HTML and says, hey, let's make HTML as expressive as we can um, within its original conceptual ideas. Um, I think uh, that, that opens up this ability to use whatever you want on the back end. Um, so that's, that, that's another adv- practical advantage, I would say, um, for, uh, for users of HTMX. They can use whatever they'd like on the back end. It feels like HTMX is the I don't know, the opposite, the antithesis of like a lot of these like heavily opinionated frameworks. This is the only way we can do SSR. We've been doing SSR for a long time, but there are a lot of niceties that those brought along. But I think that there is some middle ground here that kind of HTMX is exploring and getting eyes on it, making people think about again, which is pretty interesting. On that note, in the wild, is there a common stack then that people are using with HTMX? Are people usually tying it to a specific thing? Are a lot of people using this with like hosted backends or is it all across the board? You're seeing usage for full stack apps, people self-hosting stuff, all the way to these like software as a service backends and just returning HTML from them yeah i'm seeing a lot of different backends and that's intentional so htmx first got big i would say in the django community that's where htmx first got picked up and part of that is because django is a big old very deep you know a lot of people very passionate about it it's like the rails basically of the python world it's been around forever and many passionate users but they didn't have something like turbo links or Turbo that was focused on their web framework. And so I think that just timing and, you know, everything came together to where the Django developers, when I launched HTMX as the successor to intercooler.js, a lot of them had seen intercooler.js. And so it was just ripe to grow there. There was a need. And so HTMX filled that. So initially, HTMX was definitely picked up by the Django community. Since then, however, it's really grown out into a lot of different communities. And I try to reach out. I try to go on Go podcasts and anyone who will listen, .NET podcasts, Python, anyone who will listen because I want HTMX to enable more backend languages and frameworks to participate in the modern web. I'm not a huge fan of JavaScript as a language. It's fine. 
obviously I've written a lot of JavaScript at this point, but I really didn't like the idea that there was going to be this monolithic culture of JavaScript development in web development. And you were going to have JavaScript on the front end and back end, no doubt. We're going to have Node on the back. We're going to have React or whatever on the front. Because I like, I like the diversity of programming languages and even frameworks within programming languages. I think it's a little harmful for there to only be one thing because then you don't learn from one another, you don't grow. And languages just have different strengths and weaknesses. Python's really good at ML. Rust, there's a lot of really passionate Rust developers who are asking, how can I get Rust on the web? And you could produce a JSON API with Rust if you wanted to, but why not do a lot more work in Rust and use hypermedia as your front end. And then all these techniques that work well for other languages translate just as well into Rust. I think it's something that I don't want to say it's a focus, but it's something that I appreciate about HTMX is I really do want there to be a whole bunch of different programming languages that are using it and different frameworks that are using it. Now, the downside to that is that it's really hard to have a canonical demo of HTMX. And I've run into that with people before who are used to, I just want to run, you know, like React, a new React app or whatever it is, and just have all my stuff set up for me. And I just have to tell them, look, that's not the way HTMX works. HTMX is really small and focused on improving HTML. And that's it. You're going to have to bring your own server here. And I think that hurts HTMX sometimes. I wrote a book that I recently released called Hypermedia Systems. And people, you can go to the website hypermedia.systems and read it online for free if you'd like. And in that book, I used Flask and Python. I'm not a Python programmer, and I had never used Flask before for anything serious. But I picked that stack because Python is obviously very popular particularly with college students these days. So a lot of young people know the programming language. And then Flask is a very, even though the Django community is more into HTMX, Flask is very simple. And so it makes it very obvious what the mapping between a request is and the logic. Whereas Django is a little bit, because it provides a lot more functionality, is a little bit more roundabout. And so I felt that was the best combination of technologies, even though I wasn't familiar with them, to use for that book. I do think that lack of a specific backend that I can say, hey, use this hurts HTMX in some sense, but I also think it's a strength. Yeah, no, I think that 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 is a wise choice. And I think that is the kind of the crux of a lot of these tools that are trying to make tech that is a little more agnostic. I think that there is an interesting philosophical question that happened along this kind of um, this migration we had from traditional apps to then like SPAs. And now we're kind of doing this like SPAs with a bunch of SSR and stuff. It still feels like for the most part, a lot of these frameworks, the SSR handling is still kind of this separate piece where it is getting data as data, like it's still JSON or whatever. It's not hypermedia. It's not a thing that the browser is ready to handle. So the backends can still be written in this way where like we can write like a JSON API that then can be consumed by other things. Is there an easy answer for that? Or is there should maybe be an intermediary layer that is in like consuming the data in a server capacity and then writing like HTML and returning that to the client? Or is there something you'd prescribe for devs that are in that situation where they already have all this data from APIs that are returning JSON currently? I would go two directions. First of all, as an a-, a JSON API consumer, someone who you, where you're consuming a lot of JSON, and that's in that situation, if you're just in a position where you have to consume JSON, you wouldn't want to stream that 
JSON to HTMX. HTMX does have a uh, mechanism for using client-side templates. So you can make a request and run it through a client-side template. But it just it's not the way it's supposed to be used. Um, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. So it feels like you're using HTMX to use HTMX at that point. I've had had people say, oh, I'm collecting data from three or four JSON endpoints to present in my application. And the way to do that with HTMX is have a server-side app that does that coalescing of all that data into a, a, a usable hypermedia response and then issue your HTMX request against that server that does that coalescing of all that data. Now that might not be a good idea because maybe depending on how those JSON APIs behave and who controls them and all the rest of it, that might not be great. But HTMX really does want to talk in terms of HTML and hypermedia. So that's sort of one side if you're consuming. On the other side, if you're producing, I hear a lot when I say, oh, you should consider HTMX, is people will say, well, okay, but my JSON API isn't consumed only by my web app. It's consumed by our mobile app. It's consumed by third parties and so forth. I appreciate that. What I would say there is that, and I have an essay, if you go to htmx.org slash essays, there's a whole series of essays that you can read where I'm very boring about this stuff. But one of the essays talks about splitting your APIs up. In that essay, I assert in many cases that the application API and the third party or mobile API actually have different needs from one another, different technical needs from one another. And so it's actually an advantage to split them up into separate URL schemes and maybe even separate servers. Because your application API, as people have come to find out when they're building SPAs, needs to change quite a bit in order to keep up with your front-end application needs. And that, that need for change is something that hypermedia is really good at handling. And these fixed data APIs like JSON is, they're not set up for that. So that's why you have to version it, backwards compatibility and all that kind of stuff. With a hypermedia driven system, you don't need that. And so if you pull out your app and make it hypermedia driven, you can take advantage of that flexibility of the hypermedia system and it's, it gives you all that flexibility. You don't have to worry about versioning or any of that nearly as much as you do with JSON APIs. On the other hand, when you look at like third-party systems that are integrating with you from a, via a JSON API or any data API, the needs there are just different. You, have, you, you need to be able to rate limit them. You want to give them an expressive API, but that's not so expressive that it can be taken advantage of. So it needs to be regular. It needs to be well-documented. It can't change dramatically. So there's just, it's a very different use case for your system through that API. I think there's a real strong argument for actually splitting them up into two separate projects, have your system API and your hypermedia API. Now those two projects could and could and probably should talk to domain objects sitting just behind the APIs. And so you would have your domain logic implemented in some model layer that's reused between those two. But nonetheless, I think presenting two different APIs um, is often a good thing rather than a hassle. I think it's very reasonable. So you could you could have your like hypermedia API written on top of like your JSON API internally with some like special privileged access, and then it can do its whole thing. And there's like the external one. I don't think it would need to be that much additional work from an architecture perspective. 
But I do think that GraphQL, it was kind of trying to solve a lot of these problems as well, right? Like that was the whole thing. It's like, like JSON APIs are brittle, they're version, like there's all this stuff. Like what if we just made it so the clients could like be more expressive in how they asked for data? And it does feel like GraphQL is maybe a little bit closer on that scale to like what we're trying to achieve with hypermedia. Do you think that GraphQL is still kind of lacking in that regard because it doesn't have these like verbs baked into the data that's being passed around? Or is there some other intrinsic kind of shortcoming? I would actually point at a different shortcoming with GraphQL. And that shortcoming is the fact that GraphQL, I think, is a reasonable response to these problems. Like, it's a reasonable, oh, okay, we don't want a version. We, we need our APIs to be way more flexible. We don't want to be returning, like, everything, which is what a lot of JSON APIs do. People complain, oh, JSON is so much more efficient than hypermedia. And then you go and you look at the actual responses, and people are pulling down megabytes of JSON because they want two or three fields out of it. And it's like, guys, if that was in a hypermedia response, you'd just return the table that you were interested in, and you'd be way cleaner. But setting that aside, so GraphQL is solving a reasonable problem. The big problem that I see with GraphQL, and I, man, oh man, I've been on this horse for a while now, is that GraphQL, yes, it increases the expressiveness that's available on the client side, but any power that you give to your end developer, your front-end developer via GraphQL, you also give to hostile users who can open up a console and start issuing GraphQL queries against your endpoints. And you would never do that with, for example, a SQL. You would never just say, okay, user, here's a SQL uh, console. Um, and yeah, I think we have an instinctive understanding that would be a bad idea. And there the reality is that depending on how your GraphQL system works, like that's, I don't want to say it's effectively what you're doing, but you're getting much closer to that than you might suspect. If you make it possible to get salary data or even to order by salary data, even if you don't return the data, just ordering by things or issuing queries that bog the system down. There's all these vectors for attack that come about when you increase the expressiveness that's available on the client side. This, I think, is a strong reason to keep these sorts of technologies, these query technologies on the server side, where you can, to a first order approximation anyways, give people full SQL access to the database. Obviously, developers can screw that up. There are problems that need to be dealt with, but um, that's been done for three decades now, and it's not hasn't proved catastrophic for the most part. That's an area where or that's GraphQL is one of these things where I think it's a reasonable response to the problem, but there's another problem with it, which is this security thing that I don't think a lot of people who are using GraphQL understand or appreciate. My understanding, and this is via Twitter, so who knows if this is true or not. But my understanding is that Facebook actually whitelists all of their GraphQL, like every single GraphQL query is whitelisted in their system. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who are using GraphQL who are not doing anything remotely like that's pretty intense to go through every single query and whitelist it. I think there's a recognition that there's a security issue there. I just I don't see it discussed very widely. And I think it's inherent. This, there's just this inherent problem of you can't increase, no matter if it was GraphQL or some other technology, it's very difficult to increase the client-side expressivity in the browser where people have access to the console and can do whatever they want. Just that's the way it is um, without uh, exposing yourself to security issues. Yeah, I think, I think in particular uh, in a lot of the way that kind of the 
I don't know if prescribed, but just the way that people were recommending that those GraphQL backends and stuff be established, it would just be like, oh, we added a new field to this table. We didn't even think about it. And it just ends up bubbling out via the, the GraphQL API. No one even thought about it. So then, yeah, like you said, then you get into this realm of like, okay, make it so everything has to be explicitly whitelisted and versioned. It's like, now we're just back to a versioned API again. We have all the same problems we had with JSON. So it's like, what did we, what did we really achieve? Yeah, that's an interesting point. On If we can stay on security for a minute, if devs choose to go use something like a tool like HTMX, I think it is bringing back into their purview a subset of security problems that are being handled by the frameworks right now. It's like we don't have to worry about cross-site scripting if you're using React quite as much because there's like enough hand-holding and stuff where it's like, okay, we'll parse this and React Shadow DOM and it has all these things that'll help figure it out. But I feel like we could wind up with a lot of these kind of vulnerabilities of old, maybe for lack of a better term, if we're going back to this rendering mode. And maybe that's an okay thing. Is there like any work being done to make that less of an issue for devs getting into this space for the first time if they weren't used to this paradigm? Yeah, it's funny. There's definitely a generational thing here because the younger developers, so the style of attack that you're referring to is called XSS or cross-site scripting attacks. And bare bones idea, and this is it's doable in just plain HTML, is that if you are rendering HTML, if you're rendering content from a user as HTML and you don't escape that content, then it's possible for the user or for the user's particularly if they're interacting with one another's content, to inject HTML into your app that does malicious things. You're right that React makes that much harder. It's still doable. There's set inner HTML. There's ways I don't... React yells at you. It's like, don't do this unless you know what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, it was an issue early on in web development. And it was solved pretty effectively via templating systems and just people understanding that they had to escape content that was entered by users. So most server-side templating systems, almost all that I've ever experienced with, do this. They escape content unless you explicitly say, hey, I want to insert this directly. And then you have to be real careful about how you do that. HTMX moves these considerations back onto the server side. And in as much as you're using a mature web framework, traditional MVC style server side framework, it's not as big a deal as people probably think. I've seen people freak out. We've had some pretty funny threads on Twitter. And a lot of it boils down to younger people freaking out and then older people like me going like, no, this is a solved problem. That being said, I do have to say there was a tweet three or four weeks ago now the person, he basically raised this concern. And I do have to say, since he did do that, and there was all this, all these eyes looking at HTMX, we've gone back and looked at the code base and said, okay, we have tools in HTMX. For example, there's a, an attribute called HX disable that you can put on an element and say, don't do any processing of stuff inside this element. So that if you have content that you know is dynamic and you want to make sure that there's no way HTMX will touch this stuff, you can do that. We also, in the latest release, introduced the ability to turn off making requests uh, to a different origin. So basically enforcing that HTMX only makes same origin requests. Um, AJAX requests can go anywhere by default. And you can fix that with cores, but cores is when your server gets the request, not what your client code does. Your client code can go out. And so we introduced a config variable that allows you to say, okay, if you want to lock this down and not let requests go to any other domain, then 
he can set this to true. And when HTMX 2.0 comes out, we're actually going to make that the default. So we've tightened up our security because of this conversation around it. I think there, there was a little bit of FUD, but at the same time, it's a legit issue and there's some education that needs to be done and there's more stuff that we can do. So it's a different style of programming and has its own security issues. At the same time, I mean, I, you know, when I'm not being as charitable as I probably should be, I just look at GraphQL and I'm like, you guys are ready to slap GraphQL on what, on all this stuff with all the security issues that come with that. And now you're complaining about what's a relatively solved problem in terms of web development. And it is a fair criticism and concern of HTMX. And it's something people should definitely be aware of if they're using HTMX is how are we making sure that we're escaping our the client content on the server side. The good news is that almost every server side MVC system does that. <laughs> so probably have some very good tools already for that. It does feel a little bit disingenuous to like make some contrived example of, look how easy it would be to break this thing. And I'm using none of the tools that anyone in production would ever really feasibly be using. It's like, well, the same thing. If you like rip out a bunch of the React internals, you can make React do all kinds of stuff too. You're just a set internal HTML away, right? Like it's all doable. But I don't want to downplay it. It is a legitimate security concern. And um, there's a great website called OWASP that has a bunch of information on that. And you can go to the security section in the HTMX documents, htmx.org slash docs page. There's a security thing that links over there and explains all the things that you need to get right. If devs are looking to explore this or they've felt some of these pain points that we're articulating, but they've got this giant working code base and it's hard for them to like, I can't get rid of React. Is it doable to have like HTMX exist in tandem with these other frameworks or is it kind of like you got to pick some isolated versions of the app and you can really only have one one running there? But you can scope it down quite a bit. You could have just a single button that's HTMX powered and does a thing and experiment with it or a single page. For example, I always, when people will say, oh, we've got a giant code base in React, I'm hesitant to recommend. If things are working, especially, I'm very hesitant to recommend, oh, rewrite it in HTMX, it's going to be so much better. It's not. HTMX isn't a silver bullet at the end of the day. It has advantages and disadvantages just like everything else. And what I typically tell people when they come from that situation where they've just got a huge React code bases, maybe HTMX could fit around the edges, like supporting admin tools. Maybe you have an admin tool that needs, for example, that if you go to the htmx.org slash examples page, there's an active search example where it uses HTMX and you type into a text box and it filters down the results as you're typing. And that's a really nice user experience compared to particularly the old web 1.0 mechanism where you'd have to, you type and you'd hit submit and the page would refresh and it just took forever. So it's a much better experience. And so so maybe you have some admin screens that aren't using React for everything, or if they are, it's not super important that it be React. And it's not super fatal if things don't work quite right for a little bit. And th- those are places where maybe you can start trying HTMX out and see if it fits well. Yeah, that's what I typically recommend to people that are in that are in deep. Now, that being said, one of the sort of flagship examples of HTMX and HTMX success story is Context. It's spelled Contexty, but it's a French company. They were building an app and they were failing at building an app in React. And they moved, they decided to move from React to HTMX. And there's a, again, on the htmx.org slash essays page, there's an essay on this or just really a blurb on it linking to their talk that they gave at DjangoCon where they talk about, we moved from React to HTMX and they had a really good experience. They 
dropped a bunch of code and stuff like that. So if your application is flailing, and particularly if you feel like you're a strong full stack developer, like you feel like you have a good, strong sense of what the backend can do and the language that you're using, it might be worth at that point taking a look at HTMX as a potential replacement. It sounds like you've thought a lot about philosophically about like how data should be sitting and transmitting over the wire for the web. Do you feel that the paradigm that HTMX introduces is kind of like putting a patch in HTML? Like, do you think that that should be part of the web standard? Should the browser just be able to request an HTML endpoint, like patch, give me the delta here when I make this change? Because I feel like that's what we're trying to empower here, right? Like, should that just be native? Yes, 100%. (laughs) I think that HTMX is how HTML6 should work. I'm sure there's decisions that I've made that you might object to as far as whether or not this particular, should we fire an event in this case or whatever. But I think the general idea, and the thing is about this concept is very old. It was called transclusion early on. And so it's been around forever, this idea like, oh, and, you know, iframes kind of give you half of it in a really weird way. So there's, I feel like this behavior is around the edges. But again, in my mind, HTMX is a generalization of the concept of hypermedia controls. It's looking at an anchor tag and a form tag and saying, okay, what's the general idea here? And how can we make this more broadly usable? How can we generalize this idea so it can be used for more stuff when we're doing application development? And so, yeah, yeah, I would love it if, <laughs> if the browsers, I don't like having to maintain this. I mean, I don't dislike it, but it's, it's fun. I like Twitter a whole bunch. I think for sure, if I were, if I had the ear of, I don't even know who's in charge of this stuff anymore. I do talk to the, I've got some Chrome developers that I email back and forth with and they, I think they understand the idea and see the value of it. But man, if you think about it, HTML doesn't even have the ability natively to issue a delete or a patch. (laughs) And I've seen that there's a ticket out there where someone said, Hey, let's fix this. And I think it was the W3C basically said, no, we can't. So there's a lot of barriers, unfortunately. HTML kind of stopped like right around, like HTML2, I think, introduced forms and post. From a hypermedia perspective, that's it. And that's crazy. That was like in the late 90s. And I think it's a testament to how powerful hypermedia is that really only with forms and links, we were able to build so much stuff. But it's also a shame that HTML has been so hamstrung. They've obviously, HTML5 introduced a whole slew of improvements, but all those improvements were around client-side interactivity rather than improving the hypermedia infrastructure of the web. A little confusing, but it is what it is. It works well enough, and so there hasn't been as much pressure as maybe there could have been to improve HTML as a hypermedia. Yeah, fingers crossed. So I guess on that note, what do you think the future of the project is? I view it as a very stable, even intercooler to HTMX, which intercooler has been around for almost a decade now, was not a big jump. It was basically saying, let's take out jQuery so that we don't have a jQuery dependency. We changed the attribute names and so forth, but conceptual is very similar. And I think HTMX 2.0 will probably be out by the end of the year. And I've just recently decided that it's actually going to be even less of a major upgrade than I thought previously. There were some features that we were thinking about putting in 
And I just keep coming back to this, you know, let's just keep this as simple as possible. And it has an extensions mechanism and that's what we'll use for crazier stuff. So we can do more exploratory work and so forth. I think HTMX 2.0 is going to end up, we're going to drop Internet Explorer support, which is kind of a a meme at this point. But HTMX 1.0 does support Internet Explorer. We're actually pulling out the old WebSocket and ServerSent event stuff. Most people are using, we have extensions for those now. And we moved those to extensions because we didn't want HTMX, the core of the HTMX library to, to, to blow out, but then we wanted the WebSocket and server side events stuff to be fully functional. Like we wanted to be able to do more stuff with it without feeling this pressure of, oh man, we're making the core library too big for something that most people are not using, at least not today. So I think HTMX 2.0 is going to be pretty, like 99.9% of HTMX 1 users, when they upgrade to it, should have no work to do at all. There's been a big focus on backwards compatibility with HTMX, and I want to keep that. I want it to be really stable. You know, just again, it's in contrast with the rest of the JavaScript community, which can be pretty dramatic, you know, even on like minor releases, like APIs will get completely changed. And we've tried really hard to not do that. And, you know, people sometimes come into the code base and they're like, oh, this sucks. Like, you should do this. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're improving things for sure. But on the other hand, that is going to break a bunch of people's stuff because they're, they're relying on this. So we, we can't do that. And then sometimes they get a little frustrated and I appreciate that frustration, but we have a, we definitely have a focus on backwards compatibility and not touching things that are working <laughs> that I think other, uh, you don't see as often uh, in, the, in the JavaScript community anyways. Yeah, it's always encouraging to hear. Um, and yeah, again, like I think all of the downstream consumers appreciate as much stability <laughs> as they can find, uh, for sure, for sure. Is there anything else uh, you want to point listeners to, Carson? I feel like we've covered so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Noel. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for putting up with, <laughs> with me talking about, uh, uh, about hypermedia. Okay.